And so I think that in general, society has raised really good map followers. But when you start a company, no one hands you a map. When you start a company, no one tells you this is what you need to read and you can ignore everything else. No one tells you what success looks like. You have to figure all that out. From Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs, it's Ideas Elevated, the podcast that elevates innovative entrepreneurs and their ideas. I'm Danielle Kahn, head of Lift Labs, and today we're sitting down with Josh Koppelman, founder of Infonautics, Half.com, and now a founding partner at First Round Capital. As an early stage venture capitalist, Josh has invested in more than 100 companies, including some of the most well-known startups well before they hit it big time. From Blue Apron to Rover to Refinery29. Oh, and he was an early investor in a little startup called Uber, now the largest rideshare service in the world. In this episode, my colleague Luke Butler and I chat with Josh about which founders catch his attention, how he selects startups for investment. You'll hear his advice on pitching your company, how to stay honest with your investors, and how to create your own roadmap as a founder. We join Josh Koppelman now live at Lift Labs. Today's special guest is Josh Koppelman, a superstar entrepreneur, investor, and advisor to many of us. Welcome, Josh. Thanks for having me. So great to have you. You went to Penn, graduated Wharton. You also have a great history in Philadelphia, specifically, where Comcast is headquartered and First Round Capital is also headquartered. You launched many, many things. Among the number one thing that I know you for was launching Half.com, which then became one of the leading sellers of used movies and books online. And then you sold that to eBay. And I know you'll talk a little bit about that. You're an awesome human. You've done really so many great things for Philadelphia, but for so many startups. And here at Lift Labs, we're so committed also to helping startups grow. Um, But we learned a lot of that from watching First Round and seeing what a great job you've done, really helping startups from around the world get to the next level. Can you, you know, just number one, say hi. Give us a little bit of your background of why you got into being a VC and what you think is, uh, you know, at the root of every good startup story that you've come across so far. Wow. So what's the secret to startup success? Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. What you guys are doing is great. I didn't intend to be a VC. I kind of stumbled into it. Having started and exited a few companies, I just was angel investing with my own capital. And this was over 15 years ago, and realized at the time that it was getting cheaper and cheaper to start a company, but venture funds were getting larger and larger. So thought there was a hole in the market for a seed stage fund. That was a contrarian idea at the time. Today, it's a consensus idea, and there are now hundreds of seed stage micro VC type funds, which is a great thing for founders because there's so many alternatives for capital. In terms of a great funding pitch, I don't think there is any universal truth. I think it's something that it's clear that a founder believes that they have a perspective on a problem, on a need, or on an opportunity that the market has overlooked. 
you know, whether it's Peter Thiel who calls it a secret or other people who've talked about the importance of having a contrarian idea versus a consensus idea. I think it's that this founder has a strong, passionate, and hopefully well-supported belief that he or she has an answer to a problem that the market is ignoring or overlooking. And when you think about the pitches that you get, and I'm sure, I know that in your office, if you still have it there, if anybody remembers the old shoots that would deliver your money from the car into the bank, you yeah, have the a very- pneumatic tubes, yeah. Yes. Um, first round has one of them. And I think for a period of time, it worked. Does it, I don't know if it still works. But it you still could. works, but it's more of a showpiece. Than we, <laughs> I don't think we've ever funded any concepts that were delivered by pneumatic tube. <laughs> but you've been pitched a lot. What do you think is, is the strength of not so much the pitch, but the person behind the pitch, the founder? What are the people that you've been attracted to that you've invested in? What do you think some of them share? I think there are a lot of characteristics. I think they oftentimes share. They're intellectually honest. The goal of the startup phase of a company is to learn. It's it's to validate, de-risk, or disprove your hypothesis. And I think that it's fair to be sort of competitive and passionate, but you also want to be intellectually honest. You want to acknowledge what's working and what's not. I think they tend to be people who have a history of nonconformity. I think in general, society raises conformists. So much of what we do is, you know, you're expected to do X, so then you could do Y. You get a good summer job to get a good job. You get a good, you know, even like when you show... When you show up your first day at a college class and the teacher hands you the syllabus, you log on and see the syllabus, like the syllabus is a roadmap for, it's the cheat codes for the classroom, right? Like they tell you, here's how you're going to be graded. Here's everything you need to read. You don't have to guess what to read. I'm going to tell you what you need to read. I'm going to tell you when you need to read it. I'll tell you when the tests are. I'll tell you when the quiz are. I'll tell you even how you'll be graded. Class participation is X percent. Homeworks are Y percent. Tests and assessments are Z percent. Like, as a student, you have to be diligent and smart and self-motivated, but you're pretty much handed a map of how to succeed in that class, and your job is to follow the map. And so I think that, in general, society is is raised really good map followers. But when you start a company, no one hands you a map. When you start a company, no one tells you this is what you need to read and you can ignore everything else. No one tells you what success looks like, that this is what's how you're going to be graded. You have to figure all that out. And I think that it's so hard sometimes for people who have just spent their entire career following someone else's map to switch and become a cartographer to draft their own map. So we look for people who have a history of going off map. And that doesn't just mean by starting companies. It could mean like when they were in school, did they start clubs? Do they join clubs? Do they read books or articles? Or do they write books and articles? Did they pick a major or did they make their own major? Do they join a team or do they do something athletic on their own? Like whatever it might be, it's often hard to go against this conveyor belt of conformity that society puts people on. And if a startup is your first time doing it, that's going to be really tough. You're at Lift Labs today to meet with our accelerator class, which is a, the program that we run in partnership with Texas. And these are, these are very, very early companies. At the end of this program, they're going to be getting ready to 
uh, to pitch folks like you for some of their, their first investment. Once they've got the investment and grown a little bit further, what are the common challenges that you find? What do you work with the companies and the founders in your portfolio? And, the, and what are they kind of struggling to figure out in, in what's, what's been called the messy middle between the, the first raise and, and hopefully the massive exit? What are the sorts of common challenges that, that they're going to face? It's rare that you find a company where everything goes well consistently. It's a roller coaster. You know, you have things that go well for three years and then they don't. You have sales that grow and then they stop or you have sales that take a long time to start. And, you know, if if that founder is able to persevere, maybe it grows later. So the only thing, you know, if I were to see the business, the pitches of all of the companies in this cohort of of your Lift Labs Techstars group, the only thing I know about all of their, their pitch decks is they're all wrong. Like the minute they hit send and they email out that pitch deck, because like that pitch deck is their prediction of what's going to happen over the next five years. And I assume that you didn't like recruit people based on the quality of their crystal ball. So, you know, if you assume that everything is wrong, so much of being a founder is how you adapt or respond to change, how you could set interim targets and interim milestones because it's a marathon, not a sprint. And a lot of it has to do with how how intellectually honest you are and how communicative you are with your team so that they understand what the interim goals might be. Recognizing that a startup is trying to invent itself as it's executing, and it's rare that it gets it all right. So I think the hardest part is a founder giving him or herself permission to have been wrong and to reset expectations along the way. Take us inside those quarterly board meetings with the, with the companies that you have with founders. And how do you see your role? So the, there's guidance that you'll give them on, on the business and the product and the market. How do you see the role of an, of an investor at a, a kind of a personal level with a founder and helping them through some of those unique challenges that, that are on the, the, or the unique pressures that are on the shoulders of the, the CEO? Yeah, it's a really lonely job when you're founder of a company. You have to make so many decisions with such imperfect information. Even as companies grow, what I learned in my short operating experience is that as companies grow, the job of a founder actually gets harder. Because if a decision was really easy, an individual contributor would have made it. And if it's a little harder, that contributor might have flagged it to his or her manager. And then they would have made it. But if it was really hard, that manager might flag it to their boss, their director or something. And then if it's harder there, that that director might flag it to the VP or C-level. And like only if none of those people could make a good quality decision does it come to a CEO, right? So pretty much the larger the company gets, the harder, the tougher these decisions that the founder gets. And, and, And to some degree, they're just, facing a day long, every day is like a day full of crappy decisions. You're trying to decide, do I piss off marketing or do I piss off tech? Because there's no easy answer. If there was an easier answer, someone below you would have made it. So I think that it's really important for an investor to be empathetic, to just recognize that it's messy, to recognize that a founder has imperfect information, and to recognize 
that the vast majority of decisions, you're familiar with the construct of type one and type two decisions, some are reversible and some aren't. And you just want to make sure that like, that a founder is, has somewhat of a different decision-making process for type one decisions versus type two decisions. You know, I think it's taken time to sort of realize that, that there's a big difference between being an operator and being a coach. And as an investor, you have such limited information and you're not, you're, there's no way you're living it anywhere near the intensity. You don't have all the, the full situational and awareness of a, that a founder does. And your job is to just sort of maybe help that founder create the right constructs for decision-making. I find sometimes the most value I could deliver in a board meeting is not answering questions, but asking them and then letting the founders go through their process of figuring out what the answers are. I remember reading in First Round Review, which if the listeners have not signed up for First Round Review, it's probably the best report that you can get from the startup community. It comes out of First Round. And I think it's run usually by one person, but it feels like an army, right? It's uh, whoever's, who's the editor now? Well, we have a great team now. So okay. Jesse Craig's running it okay, now, but yes. Good. But it was run by one person, right? But I remember, and maybe this was, it was a woman who was running it at the time. And there were several articles about the power of the female founders that you had invested in and how much value they were bringing. They were doing really well. And then, you know, reading, I think in 2018 and then again in 2019 around the number, you know, 2.2%. I have this in, ingrained in my head and sleep and have nightmares about it all the time. But still only 2.2% of all VC funding goes to female founders. You as, you know, personally, but also first round have done a lot to continue to you know, make diversity and inclusion in part and part of what you do. It's not the reason you make a decision on investment, but it's certainly part of it. You're now an investor in Backstage Capital. You created Dorm Room Fund, which supports a lot of college students who are creating awesome things in their dorm room. And then Angel Track, which I've been personally interested in, but you're not doing it in Philadelphia yet. It's New in York and San Francisco. New York and San Francisco. But um, can you talk a little bit about as you first got started as an investor, you were an angel investor. Go back to those days. Like, why should people be an angel investor today? And how can we get more diverse people from diverse backgrounds involved as, as an investor, whether that's angel or, or in the future, you know, potentially to be sitting in your shoes? You know, I think economically, it's really hard to be a good angel investor, just because the odds of success are so low. But I think that it's become really hard to be a good hobbyist angel investor. I think you'd have to really view it as a portion of your portfolio and you have to be willing to spend time and capital on it. So if you're if you're if you're gonna write one or two checks a year or make one or two investments a year, I think it's really difficult to be a, a quality angel investor that could generate meaningful economic returns. You know, I think when I look at my own background, there were people that took a chance on me early on. And I think it's important that we don't shut out a whole swath of society from starting companies or from succeeding as founders or being investors. And I think I think there's been massive amounts of progress in the last few years, but it's still, it's going to take a long time for that to ripple through. I think like if you look at All Raise and some of these great programs that have gotten started industry-wide, I think that's been they've been pretty transformational. I think you've seen more 
women hired as partners at venture firms in the last two years than probably the 10 years prior to that. Mm -hmm. It's still, still women represent such a small portion of all investors. And then if you look at other demographics, whether it's even worse. Do you think they don't feel welcome at the table or do you think they're not being asked to the table? Or do you think that they're limiting themselves of just not stepping into the room? I'm not sure I'm the right, right person to ask on that. You know, I do know that what we're trying to do is a number of things. So like when we started our first round review, we did a retrospective at the end of our first year. We, we sort of said, here are the 30 best stories of the year. You know, the 30 best interviews we did this year. And we got feedback from someone that said, hey, did you know that only three of those 30 stories that you featured were women? And they were right. So we said, we need to do a much better job of making sure that we seek out role models to cover. And historically, every other year since then, 50% of our stories had male, so about 50 about have male and 50% have had female. When you look at our dorm room fund, dorm room fund is a program where we seek out college students who serve as investment partners. We're in four cities now, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, and San Francisco. And they invest in college students. So who's the best person to know who great college founders are? Probably college students. What's been fascinating is that we found that almost one in four students who have served as an investment partner at, at Dorm Room Fund in one of these cities have gone on to get full-time jobs in venture. So it's kind of created one of the best talent pipelines mm -hmm. because these are folks who graduate college and have written checks. They've actually taken lots of pitches. They understand this. And so we set a goal for ourselves that we want our dorm room funds to represent the demographics of the universities that they represent. So any given year, you have somewhere between 30 and 50% of the students are female. 15 to 25% are African-American. We're trying to sort of build a community that represents the universities they come from. But there's still a lot more work that needs to be done, and there's a lot more that First Round could do. Yeah, we have a female founder and funder meetup the fourth Friday of every month. We have 50-plus women who come to this sharing ideas. They feel like it's a safe place where they can ask anything. Men are, are welcome as well. Luke does attend. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's really fascinating because they're interested in how they can get involved as an angel investor, and is it even the thing for them being able to ask questions and, you know, have a place that they can essentially learn from one another. Much more can be done. But the Angel Track program, I think, is is one of the I'm curious, like what have been some of your early, early stories out of Angel Track? What was the goal there? So every few years you have a new generation of angel investors, right? You know, 20 years ago you had the Google employees who all got liquidity and then became angel investors, and then PayPal, and you know, you had PayPal investors, and then Facebook. And one of the things that we saw was that there really isn't a good master class on angel investing, on, on helping someone. Like, no one teaches folks what does a term sheet look like. No one teaches them what might you do to assess a market size, or what do you look for in a business. And so we said, well, wouldn't it be great if we could sort of provide a small portion of that? I mean, it's a, it, it, we have small, a very small cohort right now, and it's super early, but it's it's been interesting to sort of see 
the enthusiasm, right? Like we think we found product market fit just because we get probably 50 applications for every spot that we could fill. So there clearly is a market need there. As you look at the landscape today, a couple of questions. If you were going to go back to being an operator, if you were going to start a company, what are the areas that, that you find most interesting? And then who are, the, who are the founders that you think are building great companies and that you think are intriguing characters? What's interesting is I am running a company today. I, my company is a venture fund, but I have customers. They're my entrepreneurs. I have investors. They're my limited partners. I have to deliver a product, right? I have to deliver a set of services, ex, experience, network, know-how, and tools to help our companies win. And I have competitors, and I'm in sales. So <laughs> so I am operating a company today, and I, I, I couldn't see myself doing anything different. I just love what I do. In terms of Founders, I think that's a really unfair question. Uh, you know, when, when we have a portfolio or a community of several hundred founders, yeah. I'd say whoever I don't mention is going to be very, very upset with me. So, so I'm all gonna, of the first round founders. Yes, all yeah. of them. Yeah. They're all my favorite. You, I think, have become incredibly involved in, in the civic community here in Philadelphia from from helping to inject more awareness into, into venture capital investment in Philadelphia and, and create more, more resources for entrepreneurs to uh, heading up our local uh, news company to supporting groups like Philadelphia 3.0 uh, that are trying to get more people involved in, in civic life. Why has it been so important to you outside of the kind of the core work that you do through First Round to get so involved in, in the city of Philadelphia? So I wasn't born in Philadelphia. I moved, I, so I, I chose Philadelphia. Philadelphia didn't choose me. Um, but I've now lived here for two-thirds of my life. So, I, you know, I'm, a, I'm officially a Sixers, Eagles, and Flyers fan. Um, I see you on the, on the sidelines at the, <laughs> the Sixers games. <laughs> uh, yeah, much to my kid's chagrin. Yeah. Um, so I think it's important. I think we're at a really interesting time. Like cities are being redefined right now. And when you look at what's going to happen with automation, and there's going to be such upheaval that I think it's really important to that people are 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 willing to invest their time and their thought. I mean, I didn't realize this before I even joined, but like the importance of local news, both as a truth teller to hold power to accountability to and to inform a population, it's just it's critical. And 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 local newspapers like the Philadelphia Inquirer, which I'm chairman of, are just under such assault by the internet. And so I think there's some karma to having spent 20 years using the internet to attack slow-moving legacy businesses that now I'm chairman of a, of a legacy business that is under attack by the internet. But I think that like Philadelphia really needs that. And so I'm not saying I have the answer I have the, or even I'm heading in the right direction, but I think cities need people to be willing to step up, take chances, and invest their time and effort to try to... Uh, save existing institutions and invent new ones. On a much lighter note, I have two quick questions and then we'll wrap up. So number one, when is the first round holiday video coming back? <laughs> because I miss it. I miss you and your costumes. And I, I just think big mistake. <laughs> when is Thank it coming you. back? So it, it, it's, a, <laughs> it's a sore spot every year. So for those of you who don't know, for our first 10 years, first round put out a holiday video each year 
that got more and more elaborate, featuring most most mostly featuring our companies, um, typically sort of in some form of parody based on the viral videos of the year. And it just kept getting bigger and bigger and requiring more and more time that there was a period of time where we try, we were trying to decide if we're a venture firm that does a, a video or a video production company that, that, that kind of part-time invests. So after 10 years, we kind of just figured it was, it was a good time to drop the mic and try to find other ways to celebrate our community. All right. Well, maybe one of these days. If you haven't seen them, they're hysterically funny and Josh is usually featured in them. And then the other question, I follow you on Instagram and you're always sitting on an ice rink. You know, you take very subtle pictures of beautiful <laughs> ice rinks. And uh, can you talk about what you do in your free time, whether that's hanging on the ice with your kids or what you do outside of work to stay mindful? And Yeah, well, I'm a hockey dad. So I, both of my kids played ice hockey. Uh, my son still plays actively now. And, you know, the Instagram account started when I was, like, talking to a friend in this industry, and I was commenting on his Instagram, and it was amazing. You know, one week he's at a Buddhist monastery in Tibet, and the next week there's Burning Man, and the next week they're, you know, at some vineyard. I'm like, what type of life, like, what what type of life do you have? And and so... uh, he said, well, what's your life like? So I said, how about this? You watch my Instagram for the next few weeks and I'll show you my life is like. And every time I drop my kid off at a hockey rink, I took pictures of the ice and it kind of became a habit. So now my Instagram is just nothing more than hundreds of hundreds and hundreds of photos of empty ice rinks, which we've now I've now converted successfully into a coffee table book. Oh, really? <laughs> how great. And they're beautiful. And each one is different, you know? Yeah, you never knew you could shoot so many... So many pictures of so ice. Many pictures of ice. How else do you spend your free time? A lot of reading. With kids that are either just out of the house to college or approaching college, It's I'm trying to spend every minute I can with them. You're, I realize how fleeting it is to sort of have kids at home to be able to sort of spend time with an imprint. Nice. Well, today's special guest, Josh Koppelman from First Round Capital, thank you so much for being with both Luke and me. We collectively have learned so much from you over the years, so it's great that you're in our backyard and could stop by to say hi. Thanks for having me. Happy to do it. This has been Ideas Elevated from Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs. Be sure to subscribe to the show and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. For more information and to find us on social, head to ComcastNBCULift.com or check out the show notes. Ideas Elevated is a Q9 production. This episode was produced by Kevin Schmidlin with associate production by Angela Gervasi, editing and mixing by Max Graham, and theme music by The Last Generation on Film. From Lift Labs, I'm Danielle Kahn. Until next time.